The Air Force may revamp an aircraft to better operate in alternative regions. What do military strategists hope this change achieves? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. And Army and Marine Corps Special Operations personnel are struggling to complete language training. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is November 8th, 2023. First up, the Air Force is considering making changes to its AC-130J Ghost Rider. Defense News Air Warfare reporter Stephen Losey joins the episode today. Hey Stephen, so can you tell us about this aircraft and why the service is looking at making this change and or others. When could that happen? So the AC-130J Ghost Rider is the latest and most recent in a series of gunships the Air Force operates. They've used these gunships since Vietnam during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. These kind of gunships saw a lot of action on close air support missions, uh, major engagements like the Battle of Battles of Fallujah. The AC-130J has uh, two main cannons sticking out of its left-hand side, a 105-millimeter cannon, which is essentially kind of packs the same punch as a howitzer cannon, and a 30-millimeter cannon. The issue is the Air Force, as well as the rest of the military, since the end of the war in Afghanistan, has been shifting away from the Middle East towards a focus on a potential high-end fight against an advanced adversary such as China. And Air Force Special Operations Command is concerned that the AC-130J in its current configuration, you know, might need to have some changes to make it uh, more relevant for a future high-end fight. So one thing they're thinking about doing is taking off the 105-millimeter cannon uh, perhaps as early as 2026 and also making a couple of other changes to um, make it more relevant for a high-end fight, such as adding small cruise missiles for standoff strikes and advanced uh, AESA radar, which would allow improved tracking of ground targets, and uh, upgrades to its communications and networking so it can better tie into the Joint Forces Command and Control Networks. Does this indicate a shift in how the Air Force is looking to compete against China as the military continues its effort to pivot towards the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, it's part of a shifts, a series of shifts that are going on across the entire military as it moves away from the uh, the Middle East and towards a fight against an advanced military such as the Chinese military. In the case of the Air Force, for example, for the last 20 years or so in the Middle East, the Air Force was able to fly pretty much unencumbered. They, um, the adversaries the United States was fighting against didn't have advanced air defense systems, um, and the U.S. Air Force had pretty much um, free reign of the skies. Now, in a fight against China, that would be a very different matter. China's got a lot of really advanced air defenses, and the U.S. Air Force is realizing that some of the planes that worked really well in the Middle East would not work so well against China. Another notable example, the A-10 Warthog, 
which is uh, the attack plane that was famously used in many close air support missions. The Air Force is working on retiring those. Now, Air Force Special Operations Command isn't planning right now on reducing the number of AC-130Js further. They were originally going to have 37. They knocked that down to 30. But they are trying to think they can't just send an AC-130J into battle against China the way it was uh, used against, say, the Taliban. So they got to think of different ways to use it. And that's where things like the small cruise missiles could potentially come into play. Are there any issues these changes would create with the structure of the aircraft? Yeah, there could be. That 105-millimeter cannon is a big piece of hardware. And the entire plane has been engineered to um, kind of fly with that barrel sticking out of its left-hand side, not to mention the weight of the uh, other components inside. I spoke to another source who's in the gunship community um, who raised the point that it would require a pretty big adjustments to how the AC-130J is structured. You might have to like re- to redesign the fuselage to fix a uh, center of gravity imbalance and seal up the hole um, if it was not replaced with anything. That could have a hefty price tag, perhaps on the order of millions of dollars. In other news, a new report from the Government Accountability Office found large swaths of Army and Marine Corps Special Operations personnel failed to complete their annual language training. For more on this, Military Times editor-at-large Todd South joins us to break down this report. So Todd, could you go into some more detail about the findings from this report about language training for troops? So the GAO, at the direction of Congress, um, looked over all of the special operations language training and requirements, basically looking back from 2018 through 2022, through those uh, fiscal years. And what they did was they looked at basically how did each of these commands decide what language they need to train, uh, how much training do they have to do, and how much are the troops uh, keeping up with it. The report found that, at least with the Army and the Marine Corps, which have some of the, uh, at least the Army has a lot of the higher requirements, they have the vast majority of numbers of, of troops within special operations, they weren't even keeping up with half of their requirements. So depending on the language that a Marine special operator or an Army special operator has, they usually have at least 80 to 120 hours a year of you know, classroom training, refresher training to keep these skills up to date. All these operators received between four and six months of initial training in an assigned language. And so that created some, some concerns because, you know, they're paying around $50 million a year for this kind of training for, for these commands, and the troops just weren't using it. And so what are policymakers and military leaders saying about fixing this issue? So what they've um, come across with some of the recommendations is they want each of the commands to do a better job of deciding how they determine what languages are relevant, uh, how they're going to be used in theater, on deployments, um, especially assign them to deployments so that you're going to the right place with the right language skills or the right language capabilities within a unit. And they want a more of an accountability process to basically ordering commanders to report this information to the higher commands and keep track of it and these, and these, uh, how these training hours are being allocated and completed. And so, of course, what has been the response from the rank and file who need to be taking these trainings, according to their leaders? 
Well, a number of different respondents, uh, especially in the Army and the, and the Marine Corps, for instance, just as a side note, the, uh, the Navy um, discontinued their language requirements for their special operators in 2021. The Air Force suspended those requirements briefly and then recalibrated how they were going to do it with these new uh, theater special operations commands that they've, that they've created. Um, as far as the pushback, though, that a number of different uh, troops from different commands, they didn't name them, of course, because <laughs> they're special operations, um, basically said they don't have the time. They're pretty much, you know, their commanders prioritize other types of training, be it survival training, shooting, different kinds of deployment preparation. Oftentimes they said language didn't match where they were going. In certain parts of Europe, for example, um, where Russia, Russian used to be a commonly spoken language, it's now considered offensive to use Russian. But some of these assigned locations for those combatant commands are still to learn Russian when maybe they need to be learning Ukrainian or other dialects or other types of languages to be working with their partners. So there was some pushback both on the time constraints. There's just so much these guys have, and gals have to train for for these deployments. And if they're really learning the, the right languages. So it sounds as though the process, which the Pentagon agreed with all the GAO report's findings and has agreed to implement those findings and recommendations, it sounds like there's going to be a bit of a, a shift and overhaul in kind of how they determine what language they use and how much training they're going to need and make sure they match them appropriately to the deployments. For more conversations like this one, please like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Also on your radar for today, a new Duke University report sheds light on personal information of U.S. service members and their families. Military Times Pentagon Bureau Chief Megan Myers joins the episode today. So, Megan, what did this Duke University study find about data about service members? So these researchers went online and and tried to make deals with, it was 12 different data brokerage firms um, asking specifically for data sets that included members of the military or veterans. Um, they didn't end up buying from all of them because not all of them um, were kind of up to snuff in terms of who you'd want to be getting this information from, or they couldn't meet the guidelines that these brokers had. Um, but what they found is for, you know, for as little in some cases as 12 cents per name, um, they could get thousands of service members, service members, families, and veterans' personal information. So that's names, uh, you know, home addresses, contact information, and then credit scores and mental health information, stuff like that. Um, things that someone would ostensibly use to market toward to these people, but um, information that could also be used to contact these service members and exploit them. Has there been any guidance about this, though, from officials? What are the security risks of this data being out there? So there hasn't been any official guidance about this. Um, exploitation schemes do target service members. That is known, and service members are, you know, always told to be careful about who they're talking to on the internet. Um, you know, not to share classified information with people. Um, but the threat is that someone could get this information, um, and they could possibly find something, uh, you know, negative in this personal information and threaten to expose the service member and ask for money in response to, um, to keeping it quiet or ask for national security secrets um, to keep it quiet. Or they could just, you know, cold call and in some other way manipulate one of these service members and then um, ask for classified information um, in exchange for, for keeping keeping whatever, whatever conversations they've had private. Thanks, Megan. And now here are some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. In case you missed it, this week a federal jury convicted the captain of a dive boat that caught fire off the coast of Southern California in 2019. 
Jerry Boylan was found guilty of one count of felony misconduct or neglect of a ship officer. 34 people died on board the vessel. The New York Times reported the accident prompted the Coast Guard to issue new fire safety rules for small boats. NATO member countries that signed a key Cold War-era security treaty froze their participation in the pact yesterday. That happened just hours after Russia pulled out, raising fresh questions about the future of arms control agreements in Europe. A military appeals court has thrown out the conviction of a junior sailor who deserted his unit in 1978 and went on the lam for more than 44 years. And Dayton Daily News reported that samples from three wells at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base yielded levels of so-called forever chemicals that are above Environmental Protection Agency guidelines. Members of the base's Restoration Advisory Board said more work is needed to determine if there is a threat to local drinking water. And on this day in history, in 1960, John F. Kennedy, who previously served in the Navy Reserve, was elected president. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Stephen Losey, Todd South, and Megan Myers. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Bruce. Have a great day.